Welcome to the latest edition of the Conservative Party's podcast, Patriots Podium. I am State Chairman Jerry Kassar. Today we will be discussing one of downstate New York's hottest topics, congestion pricing. We are joined by the Republican leader of the New York City Council, Joe Borelli of Staten Island. Joe is a former assemblyman who was first elected to the City Council in 2015 and re-elected this past November. Joe is also an author with two books in publication concerning Staten Island history. He was elected Republican leader in 2021, uh, seeing his membership grow, frankly, presently to six members, really due to his leadership. He's a very hands-on Republican leader. Joe has been an outspoken opponent to congestion pricing, as well as key common, a key common sense leader in against the progressive leanings of the New York City Council. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Chairman. Appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. Let me just ask you, uh, before we get to the topic at hand, um, I'm interested in how you keep the Republican re- Republicans relevant, which I do think you do a good job in the democratically dominated New York City Council. I, I think you have to, it's like a game of poker. You know, the cards only matter so much in poker. It's, it's how you use the chips you have in com- combination with the cards. You might be sitting on a pair of threes, uh, but nobody has to know that. So it's it's more about accumulating chips uh, in the media, uh, leveraging the, the mayor off the council members, the council members off the mayor, the mayor off the state legislature. Uh, it really is, to, to give you an idea, it's, it's if you're familiar with the show Game of Thrones, sure. I forget the name of that character who's the eunuch who kind of just tries to be the, the, the seer of all things and insert himself where he thinks he could be relevant. Say I'm a eunuch, that's probably a horrible comparison. That character is the way you sort of you know, stay relevant in politics when you don't have the numerical numbers uh, to be relevant by default. Um, so, I mean, the, the people I talk to the most at City Hall are the people in Room 9, the reporters. And it's, it's really those relationships that give me the most leverage. Well, thank you for that. Uh, so, The MTA recently approved the outline of a congestion pricing plan, even though all environmental reviews were not completed. Could you thumb sketch for us the plan? Yeah, I mean, so talk about it from the most pressing issue for me as as fundamentally a Staten Island representative. I mean, we are going to make fractional uh, differences in air quality in the central business district at the expense of making Staten Island Uh, worse in every metric of air quality, uh, and in some cases by uh, double-digit percentages. So to me, it's an immoral immoral, uh, issue where we're going to benefit sort of the wealthy folks in Manhattan at the expense of the health of Staten Islanders. Uh, A broader level, uh, it's a punitive tax uh, on the middle class. I mean, this is not a tax on um, discretionary driving. This is not a tax on luxury living, uh, as some have tried to paint it to, to be. I mean, this is a tax on home health aides and sanitation workers. And I've challenged the mayor and the governor and the senators and everyone who would listen to me to stand outside of City Hall with me any day. We'll walk over to the Brooklyn Bridge and look at the cars that come across the bridge, because for every Maserati you're going to see, you're going to see five Mazdas, you know, 10 Toyotas, some old Kias, some minivans. And you're going to see people of all different stripes and ethnicities uh, and of abilities crossing that bridge and people who now are going to face attacks. 
I would estimate that if any of those people had a more convenient or not a necessity to drive their car, uh, they probably would take that other mode of transit. Oftentimes it is not faster to take a car into Manhattan, but uh, for many reasons, people don't use it. So now it's a tax on them. Well, you kind of alluded to it a minute ago. Congestion pricing has become a buzzword words for environmental wokes as well as Manhattan-centric New Yorkers who do not own cars in many cases. And frankly, they can be outright anti-automobile. I see this all the time. Do you see a certain elitist element uh, driving congestion pricing? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, we, we see it at the highest level from, from the governor and, and uh, the MTA on congestion pricing. We see it even at the local level here in the city council where we just voted to take away the community board's a role in bike lane placement. I mean, these are people who are, are the most grassroots people, and some of them like bike lanes, and, and, and rightfully so. In some places, they make sense, right? Council decided we're going to take any power out of the local community board and the local council members' hands uh, and give it all to the central authority, DOT, to put bike lanes uh, every which way they possibly can. That's the mentality that's driving transportation policy in this city. The, the, the policy is how can we take away lanes of traffic? traffic, not how we can make traffic. Uh, and, and frankly, it's not even, you know, it, it, whether you like London's congestion policy or not, they're forcing people to use electric vehicles. So, so at the very least, they're even attempting to make this about the environment, whereas we're just making it a tax. Well, I, I do think, uh, you know, uh, the representative of the uh, International uh, TWU, the John Samuelson. He, he, yeah, he jumped. He came off this board because he concluded that, you know, for for all the uh, rhetoric, it was really not going to do what anyone claimed it was going to do. And, I mean, and that's a guy who'd be the last person you would normally think would come off the board. The MTA uh, special group that was put together to come up with the plan. So I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, secondary. Uh, events occurring that really back up what you're saying. So, so John and I are very close. Uh, people, people don't believe that this, you know, really blue collar Democrat, <clears throat> this this trade unionist, uh, tough guy, John Samuelson, and that, that's might might be how he described himself as well. Uh, and and myself are actually personally very close friends. And I could tell you, he was on that board because he thought he could take congestion pricing and leverage it for better service uh, that inevitably his members would have to provide. They're the people who drive the trains, they drive the buses, et cetera. Uh, so he was hoping that congestion pricing would correlate to better service more frequently, meaning more members to him and, and thus a better experience for the public. That was the Bloomberg model of congestion mm -hmm. pricing. If you recall the Bloomberg model and they failed was to actually give a menu of things that the new money is going to pay for. Hey, I know you don't like congestion pricing, but we're going to build that new subway line extension. We're going to build bus rapid transit from here to here, just so that people could say, okay, we don't like the tax, but here's specifically what we're getting. Now it's a tax without any offset or commitment on new service. It's just a tax to make up for their own failure. Uh, between my time in the council, the assembly, and as a staffer, I have almost 20 years uh, in, in government. And I've heard time after time, especially in Albany, that if we just pass this tax, and in the past it was a congestion charge on taxis and for higher vehicles, then before that it was we have to raise the payroll tax, the mobility tax, every little 
thing the MTA has sought, they've always couched with, this is going to be the thing that gets us out of debt and into even, even balance books. And they never do because we really, absent Andy Byford, who universally will be credited for someone who really tried to rein the MTA in, absent the MTA has been plagued with horrible leadership uh, and people who have never been able to balance the books, even when they have a source of revenue that they control. I mean, keep in mind, tolls don't require the approval of the legislature. They can vote for their own tolls. They can vote for their own rate increases, uh, uh, fare increases. They have that ability. I mean, a lot of other entities and quasi-governmental institutions would love to have that. They have that ability. And they, and they have the ability to issue bonds based on their own transportation revenue. And they still manage to mismanage it. And the response from the legislature, who's supposed to be the check on them, is to actually give them more power and more ability to raise taxes without their own, meaning the legislature's, input. Well, you know, it's, it's, there's a really a very interesting convergence of interest and opposition to implementing congestion pricing. Even people like Nicole Giolinas with the Manhattan Institute, who generally supports the concept for many of the reasons you gave, is completely opposed to this plan. So, you know, you have from Manhattan business interests, from the Bronx minority interests, from Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, residents and businesses, and just about everybody from Nassau, Westchester, and Rockland counties, let alone northern New Jersey, are opposed to this. Even the, like you said earlier, even the international head of the Transit Workers Union has come out against it. Is it, it, is it, it so this is just basically another example of New York City and New York State being out of touch with the citizens. I mean, you've given us practical reasons, but the reality is they're out of touch. And do they care about being out of touch? And really, who is where does the real blame lie on all this? The government they are out of mayor? touch. And and the problem is that they can't predict when the person who ends up holding the bag has to actually hold the bag. And that right. day is going to happen. And I'll tell you why it's going to happen. Our costs of operating have only gone up. Our, uh, in terms of our planned capital debt has only gone up. Our liabilities on pension and benefits has only gone up. Now, every state has those challenges. Every single state has rising health care costs, et cetera. We are the only state or one of the only states where we are not growing economically and in terms of population to keep up with this long-term growth in our, Florida is building five houses to every one unit of housing New York builds. So we are seeing just a massive migration out of the state. And again, not just to Florida, but to the Carolinas, et cetera. The issue is that we eventually won't be able to meet the, the financial challenges. We saw that play out with the MTA itself during COVID. What happened? Excuse me. What happened during COVID when people stopped taking public transit? The MTA almost had a fall on their debt obligations. That was a quick implementation of a decline. We're still seeing that slow decline. We're not able to attract new people. We're shedding people. And even if we attracted new people, we're unable to build the housing that would be needed to have these people reside in the state. So I am I am of the opinion that that New York has already started to go into the death spiral. I'm also of the opinion that New York will one day be wonderful again. I really I really do. I, I am a New York optimist, 
The challenge is that I think we have to go through that period of decline, uh, just like Detroit, and frankly, just like a lot of mid-sized American cities did in in America, where cities like Nashville, Tennessee is probably a great one. Nashville, you could have bought a house there for nothing 20 years ago because there was no industry, no jobs. They've come back booming. The state of Florida has come back booming. The state of Georgia has come back booming. South Carolina, North Carolina, et cetera, North Carolina particularly, all these states have come back booming, but they also went flying for a period of time. We are just on the verge of that. Well, I think I would I would have a hard time disagreeing with you, to <laughs> be quite honest with you. So I know you. This is the Christmas special, right? This, this is the episode we make everybody happy and feel good. <laughs> the more we lose, the more we gain. I know you, your common sense colleagues, you know, Congress members and Nicole Maliotakis and Mike Lawler, among other elected officials, have sued, are suing, have threatened withholding funds, and and they do main, you all maintain a united front. But the beat moves on, as they say, against us on this one, at least at this point in time. What's next? How can we slow it down until the next presidential election? I want you to know that I personally believe removing Biden and electing on this issue, I mean, I have other reasons, but I believe removing Biden and electing really kind of anyone from the Republican field, really, especially a New Yorker like Trump, would make a world of difference on this issue. I actually think it wouldn't happen. Maybe it only get delayed eight years or whatever, four years, or whatever, but it would get delayed if not stopped. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I think the best case scenario at this point uh, would be for us not to have to file more lawsuits um, but for the independent redistricting commission that that basically came up with the maps that were incorrect to simply take the maps that were drawn by the special master. And in the interest of time, because this has to be in according to the court by February 28th, just to uphold maps that were already drawn. This is the simplest. Well, I'm talking about the one on congestion pricing, Joe. On congestion well, yeah. well, on congestion pricing, I mean, we have to have a lot of, and I don't have a lot of faith in Governor Murphy outside of um, his his stance on congestion pricing. But he, uh, Congressman Gottheimer, and a couple of other Jersey uh, politicians have brought a lawsuit that really has the most merit. Um, their their lawsuit has withstood some initial challenges, and I think that really is our only path. We had a, uh, last year who who was determined to abolish congestion pricing. Uh, I mean, it would have left him with the need to somehow make up for some of that money. But there are other ways the MTA can raise revenue. Look, I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I don't want to raise taxes in any way. But there are more equitable ways and more fair ways to to raise taxes to pay for the MTA and some belt tightening to go along with that than congestion pricing. Let me ask you this. Isn't there like uh, like six hundred million dollars annually in uncollected uh Fares now. I mean, I know you're not going to collect them all, but I mean, that, there's a lot of money there that they. Well, there was about a half million dollars, a half a half billion dollars, and they committed to doing something about it. And then after they did a year of doing something about it, there was like seven or eight hundred million dollars in uncollected fares. So that that goes to show you how the MTA really operates. But the issue I have is that the, the governor Zeldin would have had to confront these problems in a budget negotiation with the legislature of all all of which are up on the ballot, voted down by the public. If we give the MTA this ability to implement congestion pricing, it'll be just like tolls and fares, where they can just keep raising the dollar amount as they see fit and without any. So 
the benefit of having Governor Zeldin over Governor Hochul was that we would have, yes, had to make up the money somehow, but we would have done it in a way that's respectful of the taxpayer who ultimately gets a say in whether the people who had to raise those revenues or not. Now, do you, do you I feel anyways that a Republican, the, the, the MTA is moving to have this thing operating in the, in the uh, spring. If we were able to get past the spring and elect a Republican president, I think this would, I view, I believe this thing, this congestion pricing scheme would um, potentially be blocked. Do you, uh, do you see that uh, as a possibly, possibly I'm just, I am not optimistic on the fact that when the moment we raise the first dollar, we'll ever be able to erase it because once you have a revenue, never getting rid of it. You might as well just pack it in and just get used to it and, uh, you know, get the movie instead of thinking about going in to see the play. You know, Joe, a lot of people go to school and get their PhDs just to say what you simply said that everybody knows to be true. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them even get to become the president of Harvard and MIT. Well, hey, well, we know what that entails. So let me uh, – now I do I, – you actually started talking about it, but I wanted to change topics over to the reapportionment. You and I attended a press conference that was coincidentally on Monday. You know, even though the decision came down on Tuesday, they were not coordinated. Uh, and, you know, on Tuesday, the Court of Appeals threw out the fair and competitive redistricting in which uh, – you know, in which the judicial process uh, really showed itself to be, in my view, partisan and corrupt, at least at the highest levels. Now, I don't think a person has to agree with us at all, but I do think it was too obvious with what occurred with the switching of the judges and the final majority opinion using a judge that wasn't actually on the court. I mean, I think that was just a little too much. So there's heavy speculation that the decision of uh, throwing out the lines would come down. We expected as much. It really did seem preordained by the Democratic Party. Now that you've seen the decision, uh, you were talking about it before. Could you add your thoughts concerning the decision? Well, the most wrong thing you said was that the the, the judges are corrupt and how they get nominated just at the highest level. I mean, highest. the lowest level is, is pretty functionally corrupt, too. And you basically buy your seat from the county sure. boss or get a nomination for an uncontested uh, race. Um, that said... The the I, I think the only way that this could work out good for us, meaning Republicans and the majority, is if the current independent redistricting commission just rubber stamps the existing special master maps. Um, that you know, just in the interest of time and in the interest of not having enough, say, time to have public hearings and go through the full legislative redistricting process. Because now, remember, if they don't go through the full process. We have the opportunity to sue. So maybe there's, you know, now there's two years of some new maps that are unfavorable to Republicans where we now sue in federal court because they didn't follow their own constitutional laws in redistricting. Um, I, I just think this could all be solved if the Independent Redistricting Commission just comes out and say, you know what, we're going to rubber stamp the last maps. You're going to keep them for the next three cycles. And then in 2030, do it again. Do it again whatever way you want to do it. I agree with you. I definitely believe that. They, I mean, the court ruled on a process, which I do not agree with their decision, but they never ruled on the actual lines. And you would have every reason to want to resubmit lines that were done by an independent expert who is a known Democrat, actually, independent from a, from, from a different state. So there was there was merit there and they were highly competitive. But, I, you know, like you, 
my cynicism about this process is very real. Hey, Joe, sure. thank you uh, for taking the time to be with us. Do you have any final words for our viewers? No, they have to get engaged. Um, you know, even though we as Republicans and conservatives fought against the um, the um, uh, campaign financing at the state level, um, mostly because we don't believe in public financing of elections. That said, now we have to get used to using these rules to, to hopefully grow some of the uh, conferences in Albany, uh, because now we can be competitive in some races where at one point, uh, the the DAC and the De Senate Dems uh, could always outspend us. So we got to be we got to be ready to uh, organize in some of these swing districts uh, in the state legislature. That is my last advice for everyone. That's that should be the one they, they remember if they forget everything else I said. Well, uh, once again, Joe, thank you uh, for joining us. We have uh, you and I have known each other really for many, many years now. This, it's kind of scary. Actually, we probably have known each other for 20 years. I had hair, you know, <laughs> And I was a lot thinner, but you are, you're like, what are you, you like 40 years old? I'm 41 this year. I'll be 42 in July. Wow. So you've really had a stellar career and a very youthful stellar career. Uh, I do actually, I do I seriously believe the uh, city would be a much better place if we had a, another dozen of Joe Borelli's in the city council. I know you're part of a, a lead on a common sense caucus which is a little bigger than the Republican conference. The whole group is like nine members, right? Yeah, now, now we have nine, six independently elected Republicans and three Democrats. And to be honest, if the speaker doesn't play her cards right and she uh, you know, gives the screw to some people, we might even grow more. You never know. I, I've seen other places that have uh, worse setups than, the, I mean, I think you're not your problem, but the biggest problem is you, you deal with a loony group of legislators. Um, but I As an institution, the, the council functions very well. We just can't control who they send to the council. Well, that's, that's true. And, that's and you get some crazy people. But I do think I do think that there are I know of some other places around the state and country that, you know, you end up with, you know, nine Democrats and one Republican. And that's, you know, in a way that's worse. You have a working not a working you have a, you have the look, isn't the nine your group of the nine is bigger than the delegation from the Bronx, right? Yeah, about, about, about yeah, the same. I mean, you know, so, I mean, they, they get, people need to take – these council seats are like 170,000 people or so, right? Am I correct? The, the, the new numbers, I think 178 was the mean. So you guys, you guys, your group, are representing well over a million New Yorkers. Yep, and, and I mean, each of our districts is bigger than uh, – it's bigger than most Some American cities. Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I just think the dynamics or the size of New York City is lost on a lot of people. You know, they say we're entirely Democratic. Staten Island is not. And if the city council common sense crew, which I look as like the conservative group, is representing, a, you know, a million five hundred thousand New Yorkers. Well, just say, heck Jerry, Jerry, say moderate, moderate, not concerned. I don't want to lose anybody. So moderate. All right, all right. Well, you know what? <laughs> they probably wouldn't watch the show. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but I agree with you. I, and I could I could live with more moderates in the New York City Council. Let me make that very clear. I as a resident of Brooklyn, I want to make that clear. Uh, so I do want to thank you for being so outspoken on, you know, many issues. I mean, you have been a true voice, you know, for a lot of us. Uh, around, uh, you know, a lot of us who don't live on Staten Island. I'd also like to thank Andrew and Katie who make this show happen. And, uh, you know, we've been producing shows all year and plan to continue into the new year. I think this will be our last show for this year. And we thank you for that. 
once again, the conser- I'm the Conservative Party State Chairman, Jerry Kassar, and you've been listening to Patriots Podium. Thank you. Thank you.